Welcome to A Short History of Symmetry, a series of podcasts from the University of Warwick. In this series, Professor Ian Stewart will explore the concept of symmetry and its impact on mathematics, physics and the way we understand the world around us. In our first episode, Professor Stewart explains what symmetry is and how mathematicians and physicists have approached the subject. Mathematicians think about symmetry rather differently from the way, let's say, architects or artists would think about symmetry. The mathematical concept of symmetry is very, very precise, specific, and it's not just a sort of general feeling for the left-hand side of this thing looks the same as the right-hand side of this thing. It is the mathematical idea of a transformation, of a way of, in effect, picking up a mathematical object, moving it, putting it back down again... And if nobody was watching while you did it, they wouldn't realise that anything had happened. And the symmetries of an object are the transformations that leave that object looking the same. So let's think about an architectural example. You've got a building and the left-hand side of the building looks exactly the same as the right-hand side. The mathematician will say, OK, now here's how we talk about the symmetries of that building. The important transformation is reflecting left and right. And when we say the left-hand side looks the same as the right-hand side, what we mean is that when you reflect the whole building, you can't tell anything's happened. And mathematically, if there was a tiny, tiny detail that was different, we'd say, well, it's not quite symmetric, is it? Um, So the mathematical symmetries are meant to be perfect. On the other hand, when we come to apply this idea to the real world, we know that the real world never quite fits the mathematician's ideal perfect uh, theory, so we're prepared to tolerate a a, a small amount of differences. So the human body is pretty close to being left-right symmetric, and mathematically that means if you look at the human body in a mirror, it still looks like a human body, and it pretty much looks like the same person. Uh, Again, if you look very closely, maybe the left-hand side of somebody's mouth tilts up a little bit, in the mirror the right-hand side tilts up a little bit. Mathematically we don't worry about that kind of thing, we work with an idealised, perfectly symmetric object. Now, what happened was that around about 1830, mathematicians blundered into this way of thinking about symmetry. And I say blundered because that wasn't what they were trying to do. What they were trying to do was solve algebraic equations or work out why you couldn't solve algebraic equations. Part of a long tradition that started with the ancient Babylonians about 4,000 years ago, worked its way through the Greeks, uh, the Arab world in the medieval period, back into Europe for the Renaissance through the French Revolution. And it was during the French Revolutionary period that the basic mathematics of symmetry was invented. And I think invented is the word here because there is a particular point of view that you have to sort out and define, and it's almost a conscious act of mathematicians to say, this is an interesting point of view. And then after that, there's a period of about 30 years when nobody knows what they've got, and in fact it almost dies. Then the mathematicians start developing this as a completely general tool for doing all sorts of things in mathematics, and they really do understand this is about symmetries. If you go back to something like a cube, regular solid... We can talk about the symmetries of a cube. And we can actually say, with some precision, a cube has 48 different symmetries. And that kind of characterises a cube 
mathematically. And anything with the same symmetries as the cube is going to behave in certain respects like the cube. <laughs> so it's a kind of unifying principle. Meanwhile, physicists are developing very accurate theories of how the physical world works. Starting from Isaac Newton, working through law of gravity, law of motion. A key stage in the whole thing is Maxwell's equations for electricity and magnetism. And when they're first written down, they are for two separate theoretical phenomena, electricity, magnetism. And within a very short period, they have become one theory of electromagnetism. And two different physical theories have been unified in terms of the mathematical laws that govern them. What follows hard on the heels of that is Einstein's relativity, quantum mechanics, a whole pile of very modern stuff about theories of everything which try and unify those, all of which we now view in terms of this mathematical concept of symmetries, and in particular the technical object involved, which is a thing called a group. The French Revolutionary period, Évariste Galois, who introduced this stuff, used the word group because... He meant it in the sort of everyday sense. It's a collection of objects. And in his case, the objects were different ways of transforming the solutions of some algebraic equation. And he said these things form a group if when you shuffle these solutions according to one member of the group and then shuffle them again according to a second member of the group, the result is the same as shuffling them once according to some other member of the group. So there was this group property. It all came... At the end. There was a collection that was closed under repeating op operations one after another. It's much easier to understand in terms of a geometrical object. Um, the easiest one, I think, is a square. Uh, think of a square tile. Think of a mathematician's square, which is the same on the back as it is on the front, <laughs> unlike most real tiles. If I've got a tile sitting on the table in front of me... I can move it in a number of ways. Uh, I can rotate it through a right angle. If I rotate it through a right angle, it looks exactly the same as it did before I did anything to it. If I rotated it through 45 degrees, it would look diamond-shaped, not square. It would have changed its orientation. So the 45 degrees is not a symmetry, but the 90-degree rotation is. Uh, I could also rotate it through 180 degrees. If I rotate it through 90 degrees and then rotate it through 90 degrees again, that's the same as rotating through 180 degrees. This is Galois' group property, but seen with motions of a square. And there are four ways to rotate a square to keep it in its original orientation, which are essentially rotations through one right angle, two right angles, three right angles, 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 270 degrees. And what are we missing leave it alone, rotate through zero degrees. You have to have that because if I rotate through 270 degrees and then through another 90, I get back to exactly where I started. It's the same as leaving it alone. Not in terms of what you do, but in terms of where it ends up. So there are four rotational symmetries of a square. There are four others, not quite so obvious. They're reflections. You can reflect it about a vertical axis, a horizontal axis or the two diagonals. So altogether, the square has eight symmetries. Those form a group. If I rotate the square and then reflect it, that will be the same as some other operation in that group of eight symmetries. 
So mathematically you start to get the feeling that what this subject is about is this funny sort of algebra of applying one operation followed by another one. It's a sort of multiplication. And this is where the mathematicians went with it. And for a long time they just said, oh, I wonder what happens when you do that. The physicists started to realise that the transformations used in physics have this group property. And let's take Isaac Newton's laws of motion. The important feature of the laws of motion are it doesn't matter whereabouts you are in the universe, it's the same laws. Same equations govern how things work. What's going on there might be different, but the laws behind it are the same. And what that means is if you move from one location to another, the laws remain unchanged. They're like a square that looks the same after you've rotated it. The laws look the same after you've moved. And if I move from one location to a second location, and then move from there to a third location, I could have gone straight away from the first place to the third place, and what would happen to the laws is the same, whichever way I do that. And this is the group property for symmetries of the laws of motion. And there are other symmetries of the laws of motion, changing location in time is another one. So the basic symmetries of Newton's laws of motion are movements in space and movements in time. But that has a mathematical structure, that's a group. You need a rather sophisticated point of view to realise something as straightforward and trivial as that actually means anything. It very strongly constrains what the laws can look like. So this group property emerges as the key mathematical idea in the whole business. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the story from where it really started, which was the scribes of ancient Babylon, 2000 BC. Follow the story through through the Renaissance period in Italy, which is particularly important, to the, the pivotal point of the whole thing, which is the work of this man Galois in the French Revolutionary period. Then we'll talk about Einstein, relativity, quantum mechanics, and the need to unify relativity and quantum mechanics, and end up with the current front-runner for a unification of the whole of physics, a bit controversial but very interesting, which is the theory of superstrings. Most importantly, we want to understand how all of this is linked together by a common thread, which is the mathematical principles of symmetry. If you would like to find out more about the history of symmetry, Professor Stewart's book, Why Beauty is Truth, is now available. In our next episode, we explore the world of Babylonian, Greek and Arabian mathematics.